Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church of De Pere to all who are listening on KFUO. The lessons that we'll be studying today in preparation for worship next Sunday are the appointed lessons for proper number 12. We begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, bless your word wherever it's proclaimed and taught. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those who have not yet become your own and to strengthen and confirm those who by the Spirit have come to saving faith. Bless our study today. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, from the lip to the life, that as you've promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you sent it. We pray these and all things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament lesson appointed for this week is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. As a word of introduction, we call the book Deuteronomy, but the Hebrew name is Elah Hadabarim, or simply Dabarim, which translated is the words. It's based on Deuteronomy 1.1, which says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. The book is a collection of the farewell sermons Moses preached to Israel before they entered into the promised land. Our word Deuteronomy means a repetition of the law. It's actually based on a mistranslation of Deuteronomy 17.18, which says, And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So Deuteronomy is a repetition, a copy, a second giving of the law. As 1 verse 1 said, these are the words of Moses. So clearly he is the author. This is the fifth book, including Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in what is called the Pentateuch, the five books, or sometimes referred to as the Torah. Though some scholars like to debate that Moses is actually the, the author of this book, all of the rest of the Old Testament names Moses as the author. Joshua, Solomon, David, all attributed to Moses. Jesus attributed to Moses, as did Peter, Stephen, Paul. The New Testament all quoted it over and over again, attributing it to Moses. Now, admittedly, there are parts at the end of this book that were likely written by someone else. For example, chapter 34 tells of the death of Moses. But Moses spoke these words when the Israelites were camped beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab. As they prepared to cross the Jordan and enter Canaan, the promised land which God would give to them, and as Moses prepared to transfer his leadership to Joshua, who would become the one in his place. Scholars date the Exodus from Egypt uh, somewhere around 1446 B.C. And Forty years had passed as they wandered in the wilderness, so the date of Deuteronomy would be around 1406 B.C. A whole generation had passed away since the Exodus, and since that dramatic experience at Mount Sinai when God gave them the Ten Commandments, His law. Israel needed to be reminded of the covenant which the Lord made with them at Mount Sinai, 
what the Lord required of them as his people, when they would take possession of the promised land and enjoy the promised rest. It was word Israel needed to hear over and over again, generation after generation. There would be blessing for obedience, but curses for disobedience. It's all about the Lord's love for his people. It's about his grace and their response, their love for him. It was a call to a life total devotion to the Lord. That's the only appropriate response to the good news of his grace. Our text is from Deuteronomy 7, an interesting chapter which begins, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altar, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. The Lord ordered complete destruction. Destruction of all of the people who lived in the land. There were seven nations that were greater in number, more powerful than the Israelites, but the Israelites were to destroy them, make no treaty, show no mercy, not to intermarry with them, not to deal with them in any way, but break down their idols and burn them. Sounds pretty intense. Didn't God promise to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nations? That doesn't sound like bringing blessings. Wouldn't it make more sense to go into the land and try to get along with the people who were there in the hope of winning them over? Or would the idolatry of the Canaanites, the Baal and the Asherah worship, with all of their sexual perversions, be so seductive, so tempting, the Israelites couldn't resist and fall into their idolatry. This is an issue for Christians of every age, isn't it? Should we isolate ourselves, protect ourselves from the evil people and the culture around us? Or do we engage the world around us in order to win them over? In this case, God directed them to protect themselves. In Matthew 10, when Jesus first sent out his disciples, he told them not to go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. And still he warned them that he was sending them out like sheep among the wolves. But they shouldn't be afraid, for the one who endured to the end would be saved. It wasn't until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that they were sent into the world to all nations, and at that point, everything changed. Jesus gave his church power and a sword, the sword of the Spirit, and he sent them out to evangelize all the nations. And that's where we are today. In the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not 
isolated from it, not hunkered down in order to protect ourselves. He has promised he will protect us. Yes, we need to be careful, very careful. Sometimes we're seduced by the world, but our place is out there in the world. And so from time to time, we, like those people, need to be reminded who we are. We are his beloved people, and he has promised to bless us. Well, that's the point of our text, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You are a holy people. God has chosen you. God has made you his treasured possession. Lest Israel ever think that God chose them because they were greater or stronger or more numerous or more worthy in some way than any other nation, as being the reason for which he chose them and loved them, Moses set the record straight. It wasn't about them. It was about God, about his steadfast love, undeserved love. It was about his grace and about his faithfulness to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. He had made them holy people. He had set them apart as his own of all the nations. They were a holy nation. God chose them. They didn't choose him. God chose them even though they didn't deserve it. God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. God had blessed them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. God would give them the land that he had promised. In John 15, verse 6, Jesus told his disciples, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. We believe that, and yet there's a little voice in each of us that wants to take some credit for God's choice. We think we deserve it. We've earned it. We've worked hard for it. We've been good. We've kept the commandments. We know it's not true. The point is, our God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Our God is faithful. He sent his son, Jesus. Our God is faithful, and he loves us with a steadfast love. And so Moses was telling the people, remember who you are. You are his people. You are his treasured possession. You are a holy people, holy to the Lord your God. So he set you apart from all the others. 
we need to be reminded of that too. Because there are times we don't always act holy. But shouldn't we? Haven't we been set apart from the world to show the world, to demonstrate with our lives and, and with our words the love which God has for us? He has chosen you. Don't you need to hear those words over and over again? Generation after generation, as we live in the midst of an unbelieving world, certainly in these times, uh, in the midst of all of the issues that we're facing today, the pandemic, the racial tension, the economy, the election, God says to us, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. We are truly blessed. The second lesson, the epistle lesson, is from Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. Again, a little bit of background. Though we've studied Romans for several weeks now and will for many weeks to come, Paul's letters to the Roman was, was written somewhere around 56-57. He was in Corinth, about to travel to Jerusalem, to deliver the offering from the churches of Asia Minor to the persecuted and poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he was hoping to go on from there on a missionary trip to Spain. Along the way, he planned to stop by Rome. He'd never been there, so he sent a letter ahead to introduce himself as an apostle and to give the Roman church a vision of what he believed. He began this letter in a familiar style, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul considered himself a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle, similar to an ambassador, a spokesman who was sent by Jesus. And with these opening words, he was presenting his credentials. He, he was an apostle. And he too was set apart, made holy for the gospel. He serves Jesus. This letter is all about Jesus, about his power, his resurrection from the dead. Then in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul laid out the main theme of his letter. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Paul's letter is all about the power of God for salvation, the power of the gospel to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This morning we have one of the most beautiful passages in Romans, one which has brought so many of us so much comfort throughout our lives. 
And as always, its context is important. Romans 8 begins in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With these words, Paul begins to wrap up and summarize the first eight chapters of Romans. There is no condemnation. Imagine what that means to someone who is overwhelmed with guilt. Someone who's feeling this burden of guilt. Someone who is afraid. There is no condemnation. No separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for us. For all who believe. All who are baptized into Christ Jesus. We have been justified by God's grace as a gift through faith apart from the works of the law. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through holy baptism, he has claimed us as his own children and heirs with Christ and promised that we will be glorified with him. There is no condemnation for us. That's a word we need to hear. But then in chapter 8, verse 17, he added, Provided we suffer with him. What about all the sufferings of this present time? In fact, Paul indicates all of creation seems to be suffering and groaning in bondage to corruption, and we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for God's plans for us to unfold. We grow impatient. We sometimes wonder if God has abandoned us or turned against us. There are even times when we don't know exactly what we're supposed to be praying for. Doesn't that sound familiar? For months now, we've been stuck in the sufferings of this present age. Been troubled, fearful about our health and our finances and our safety and our neighbors and our community and our country and our future. We've grown impatient We've groaned. We've wondered if all of this means that God has abandoned us. And if not, we long to know what God's plans are. And there have certainly been times when we haven't known what to pray for. But Romans 8, verse 26 and 27 assures us, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The problem is not that we know what we need and just lack the right words to ask for. We don't even know what we want. We don't know what we need. We don't know how to pray about it. In the midst of all of our confusion, then, we have the comforting assurance that the Spirit intercedes for us, aligning prayer on our behalf to the will of God for us. Now, sometimes we've decided that our prayers are or simply a means of trying to convince God to do things our way. 
When in fact, I believe prayer is God, the Holy Spirit, aligning our will with God's will, helping us to see what God's will is for us. And so in those times when we're confused and don't know what to pray about, it's the Holy Spirit who prays words for us that we could never even begin to understand. Our lesson then begins in Romans 8, verse 28. The English Standard Version translated, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We've often heard it translated, we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God. We've often heard it translated, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Admittedly, there are some textual variations, but they all reflect the very same thought. Even though things might seem bad, even though our prayer life might not be all that we know it should be, Nothing can threaten our status as Christians, as children of God, because of God's love for us. And in the middle of it all, he will work everything out for our good. You believe that's true? How's that been working for you in the last few months? This passage could make you feel somewhat uneasy. It seems to say that things work out for those who love God. Are you sure you love God? You sure you love Him enough? Is that why things don't seem to be working out for you right now? You don't love God enough? See, that's a terrible trap that some theologians try to dump on us. It would make God's love and all things working together somehow dependent upon you, on your love for God. But Paul sets us straight. It's not about what we do. It's all about what God has done for us that makes all the difference. All things work together for the good of those who have been called according to his, according to God's purposes. God's purpose, God's will, is to bless you. God has done everything necessary for your salvation. You can be absolutely confident. And so Paul lined up the chain of events, what God has done to make his love for you and your salvation sure and certain. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here are five verbs, all in the past tense. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. All things God has done in the past from eternity, in the present, and into the future eternity. He says, God foreknew you. This isn't just knowledge about you, or that God knew that someday you were going to exist. 
God knew you intimately. God approved of you. You're his chosen one. From eternity, God knew you and God chose you. Before you could do anything to win his approval, before you could love him back or earn his salvation in, in any way, God loved you. This is just pure grace. Secondly, God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. His goal was to bring you into conformity with Jesus. He wanted you to share in all the blessings that now belong to your Savior, the risen and ascended one. He wanted to bring you into his family. Jesus is the firstborn among us. We are brothers and sisters, siblings of his, of his son. And all of this is purely by grace. Now this word predestined has raised all kinds of theological questions that continue to trouble and divide the church. Questions like, well, if God has predestined some people to salvation, doesn't it logically follow that he predestined others to damnation? We call that double predestination. And while it seems to make logical sense, it's not what the scriptures teach. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God would have all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, well, how can I be sure that I've been predestined, that I have been saved? Well, our salvation is assured through Jesus. He's done everything necessary for our salvation. If we ever start to doubt that we have been predestined, if we ever question our salvation, we need to look simply to the cross, to the empty tomb, there's the guarantee that the promises to us are all true. Another question. Since I'm predestined, why should I live a Christian life? Why should I go to church or study the Word or contribute or do good works or share my faith? I'm predestined. I'm good. I'm taken care of. But that misses the point. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ to live as Jesus lived, to carry out Jesus' mission to evangelize the world. Some who buy this even claim that missions and evangelism are necessary because people have already been slotted for heaven and hell and there's no way that sharing the good news with them today can change that. But if we're to be conformed to the image of Christ, Aren't we to give glory to our Father? We're going to do it for eternity. Why not start right now? The third word, God has called you. In order to bring his blessings to you now in time, he has called you, invited you through his word and sacraments. The Spirit works through these means of grace to bring you to faith so that you might cling to him, depend on him, the righteousness of Christ. It's all about Jesus. And in this way, we become children of God and heirs of heaven. And so, fourth word, God has justified you. Jesus died for all, 
the whole world, for everyone. Scripture clearly teaches he died for all, all the sins of all people. And we sometimes call this objective justification, general justification. Jesus died so that all people might be forgiven, even those who don't believe it. But only those who believe this have what we call subjective justification, or personal justification. In this passage, Paul is talking about subjective, personal justification. The Spirit has moved you to believe that all that Jesus has done for you, and now the Father declares you to be holy and just and acceptable to Him. The fifth word, those God has justified, he also glorified. You are glorified. You share in his glory. Notice the word glorified here is in the past tense. It's already done. It's absolutely certain. The full realization isn't happening yet, but it will happen when we're with him in heaven. We sometimes use the expression already, but not yet. Past tense, but in the present and into the future. Glorified now, but not yet fully. God has done all of this in his mercy and grace. He foreknew you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and glorified you. Your past, your present, your future... God in his love has got you, no matter what's going on in your life. So how do we, how, how can we respond to a God who loves us so much? Look at verses 31 through 34. Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul asks, what shall we say in response to all this? To all God has done, does, and will do? Well, then he answered that question with a bunch of other questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice the little word, if. This isn't iffy, wondering if God is for us. A better translation is since. Since God is for us, and we know he is, then who can be against us? No one. Nothing can defeat us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Since God did this big thing, this great thing, since God gave his son, won't he also do the smaller thing? Won't he likewise give us all things? Paul asked, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies who's to condemn. It's the imagery of a courtroom with God as the judge. If he foreknew you, predestined you, called you, justified you, glorified you, and he's the judge, who could possibly oppose his choice? Who could bring any charge against you? Who could condemn you? What about Satan, the ancient accuser? You know, he's got the goods on you. He could present all kinds of evidence against you, and you know it's all true. But no. Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, is our defense attorney. Jesus has stepped before the judge and presented himself. He, he took the sin, and he took the punishment for us. There's no way our case can be decided against us. Satan's charges against us are all dismissed. Well, what about the difficulties of everyday life? Some of them were facing persecution. Can the troubles of your life wear you down and rob you of your faith and take away that certainty? Paul answers that question with three more questions. In 35 and 36, he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, For your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Bad things are going to happen to us. It sounds like 2020, doesn't it? But Paul quoted Psalm 44, verse 22, saying, Our situation is going to be just like that. For your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We're going to have to bear our crosses. Our lives as Christians aren't going to be easy. But will any of that separate us from the love of God? Will any of that be indication that God has stopped loving us? Paul answered emphatically in verses 37 through 39. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Far from letting these things beat us, Paul claims we are more than conquerors. Think about that for a moment. We're like superheroes. We've got superpowers. Our enemies don't have a chance against us. Not because we're so great. Not because we've got so much power. Not because we've done so much. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's all because of his love for us. He'll carry us through all the bad things. There's 
nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. No evil forces, no distances, no circumstances in life. God's love is there to protect us. He who has known us and called us will keep us in the faith forever. We can sometimes be so overwhelmed by the things going on in the world around us. But Paul helps us to see it all from God's eternal perspective. He helps us to see the rest of the story, the end of the story. Now we know how it's all going to work out for our good. And even this isn't the ending, but a new beginning. It's a glorious recreation of all things, the final victorious revelation of God's people as more than conquerors in his love. Paul wants you to see the world through the eyes of Christ, for he knows that this vision can change your life. Well, the Holy Gospel is a continuation of the readings from the last few weeks from Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52. Once again, we we put it into its context. Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector in Capernaum, a very unlikely candidate to ever become a disciple, an apostle. But when Jesus called him, he left everything and followed Jesus. He was an eyewitness of most of Jesus' ministry. Now, there were things that Matthew left on the table, the taxes he owed to the Romans, but there were also things he took with him. He took along his pen, for example. As a tax collector, he had to be very careful with details. He likely spoke Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. He may have written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit this gospel account as early as 50 A.D., certainly before the Roman destruction of the temple in 70. St. Matthew's gospel, appropriately the first New Testament book, bridged the gap between the Old Testament and the New. It was addressed primarily to people who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, to the Jews. He alluded to more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, and he showed how Jesus fulfilled them all. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Chapter 13 begins by telling us that Jesus went out of the house where his mother and brothers couldn't get close to speak to him. Remember that account? And he sat by the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd gathered. So he got into a boat so that more could hear them. And he began to teach many things in parables. Parables are simple stories based on everyday happenings that everyone could relate to. But Jesus used these stories to teach a much deeper spiritual truth. Most of the time there is just one simple truth in a parable. So we need to be careful not to get caught up in trying to explain every one of the details. In these parables, Jesus was seeking to teach his disciples and us about the kingdom of God, how God was at work in Jesus to reestablish his reign, his rule over the world for the sake of his church, his rule in the hearts of believers, his rule in the glory of heaven. He is 
always in control. Remember we said he's making all things work together for the good of those who love him. These parables, these simple stories, begin by hiding things before ultimately revealing them. Not everybody understood them. Not everybody understands them today. But to those who believe, they're crystal clear. In this chapter, there are seven parables. Some he told to the crowds, as we've heard the last few weeks. But the ones we're going to look at today, he only told to his disciples back in the house in private. These are important truths intended for us, believers today, about the kingdom of heaven. The first is the parable of hidden treasure. It's just one verse. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Like treasure hidden in a field. It was common practice in those days for wealthy people to divide their wealth into three parts. One part was in cash, so that a person could conduct business. Another part was invested in jewelry that they could quickly grab in a hurry to take with them in in case they had to flee from an, an enemy. A third part he would bury in the ground, hide somewhere, so that if he had to go away quickly, he would always come back at a safer time and dig it up. Ah, but sometimes... He didn't come back home, and usually he hadn't told anyone where he'd hidden it. And so a man just happened to find that kind of treasure out in the middle of the field. He probably wasn't looking at it. It was just there. But he re immediately recognized this had great value, and so he covered it back up again. Now, this is one of those times we don't get hung up on all the details. Whether this was a moral thing to do or not, that's not the point. He went in his joy, and he sold all that he has, and he buys that field. No one forced him. He did it joyfully. It cost him dearly all that he had. He bought the entire field. Was this a wise investment? The treasure now was his. A simple story, right? Well, not really. Second parable is similar, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom is like a merchant pearl merchant. His business was to trade in fine pearls. He was always searching for the best, the most valuable. Notice how he was in search of fine pearls, plural, and then he found one of great value. He was looking for many. He found one. He recognized that this one was worth more than all the others, more than all he had. So he sold everything. He invested it all in one single perfect pearl, which meant he was done. There were no other pearls. 
Another easy-to-understand story, wasn't it? Nothing deep or complicated about it. The way we usually understand these parables is that the treasure, the pearl, represents the kingdom of heaven. What God is doing in Christ Jesus. The kingdom is more precious than anything else in this world. Those who recognize what a treasure, what great value it is, will invest everything. They will reevaluate all their earthly possessions. They will see it all in a different light. They will take, take what, what they have that is of any value and unload it, unburden themselves of it so that they might make this treasure their own. Well, for the sake of the kingdom. We're like those people. We find a treasure. Some people just happen upon it. They aren't looking for it. They don't even know it exists, but it's there for them in God's word, and they just happen upon it. Perhaps a friend tells them about it. And when the Holy Spirit reveals it to them, convinces them of its great value, that what Jesus has done for them is the only way of salvation, they'll invest everything for the sake of the kingdom. Other people are searching for it. There are many people today who are searching because they realize that what they've invested their lives in isn't working. Their philosophy, their belief system, their view of the world, their lives, their wealth, their career, it isn't working. It really has no value. And when the Holy Spirit reveals to them and convinces them of the kingdom's great value, that what Jesus has done for them is the only way of salvation, they invest everything. These parables are often seen as a, a matter of Christian stewardship. They help us to examine what we have invested in our lives in. Is, is it about our family? Is it about our marriage? Is it about uh, our friendships? Is it about our money? What is it that is of greatest value to us? What is it that we will give up everything for in order to possess? The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Professor Jeff Gibbs of Concordia Seminary says maybe there's an even deeper interpretation to this story. What if we were to look at it this way, that Jesus is the man who found the treasure. Jesus is the merchant seeking fine pearls. Jesus is the one who sold everything he had to buy the treasure. We know he came to seek and to save the lost. We know that Jesus emptied himself, made himself nothing, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Then what's the treasure? What's the pearl of great value? What would Jesus give up all he had to possess as his own? You and me. He died on the cross. He shed his blood to redeem you and me. Remember, he was just talking to his disciples at this point. He was teaching them about his kingdom. He wanted to assure them of his love, the sacrifice he would make for them, 
that there is nothing in all creation that would be able to separate them from his love. What a powerful, comforting message this would be. This is the gospel. What a powerful, comforting message it is for us, too. That he considers us a treasure, a pearl of great value. He has redeemed us, and nothing can cause him to stop loving us. The passage continues with another parable, the parable of the net, verses 47 and 48. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. One of my favorite remembrances of a trip to Israel was riding in a fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And we watched the captain casting his net. That day he didn't happen to catch anything, but, but he, he talked about the disciples who would have loved this imagery. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had all made their living as fishermen, and, and they surely would have enjoyed this story. It's about a net thrown into the sea that gathered fish of every kind. And it wasn't until it was full that men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Every kind of fish, good fish, bad fish, caught in this net. And it wasn't until the fishermen got the net to shore that they began to sort it all out. And they kept the good ones and threw away the bad. Simple story. Well, Jesus interpreted this one for us. Verse 49, he said, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the age, on the last day, everything will be made right. Evil people will get justice, exactly what they deserve, a fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal damnation. On that day, those who have been included in the visible church, all who claim to be Christians but are not, all the hypocrites, those who participate in the church because it makes them look good or respectable, all those who use the church for personal gain, the self-righteous, the legalistic, the unrepentant, those who don't really know Jesus as their Savior, on that day it will all be sorted out. Well, this could be kind of a scary image. It certainly talks to, to us about the, the church today. We know that within the church today there are hypocrites. That's one of the things that we are constantly being bombarded by. Yes, they are there. Yes, there are evil people in the church. Yes, we don't always treat one another the way we, we ought to. But the day is coming. The end of the day, age. In the meantime, we don't need to be the judges. We know the church won't be perfect. We can live with that. We know that in the end... Jesus comforts his, his treasures, his pearls, his disciples, saying he'll take care of it. He knows those who are his own. We don't need to be discouraged. 
We don't need to be afraid of what's happening in the world or in the church. He's got us. Jesus called his disciples and us to be fishers of men, to cast the net, to gather all kinds of people with the good news of salvation in Jesus. He died for all. His mission is our mission. Then Jesus asked the disciples, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. They thought they understood. They thought they got the truth Jesus wanted to teach them with these parables. But did they? Well, later on, they'd show that they really didn't get it. They still had a lot to learn about spiritual things, about discipleship, about the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, that they really understood and remembered all the things that Jesus had taught them. And we? We have the Holy Spirit who continues to teach us as we study His Word, even as we're doing today. Verse 52, Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new, what is old. This really isn't another parable, but it's obviously another comparison. Every scribe, everyone who knows the Old Testament, a student of the Old Testament, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, remember he was teaching his disciples in these parables to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he assures them that When the time comes, they'll have a treasure store of wisdom and truth. They would have the Holy Scriptures. And they will be able to proclaim both old and new things that God is doing as they point people to Jesus. Sometimes we need to be reminded as well. We have a treasure. And we can bring out of this treasure what's old and new. The Old Testament and the new. The more we know about about the scriptures, the more we believe the scriptures, the more we can quote the scriptures, the easier it is for us to share that good news with those around us. Well, those are the three lessons for this coming Sunday. Um, Thank you for tuning in. I invite you to join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you in favor and give you his peace. Amen.